Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Tibble. From inside the centre square. time of day everyone this is episode number 125 of americans watching the footy in which hopefully we don't get suspended for stating facts i don't know if this news has reached australia but the baltimore orioles broadcaster kevin brown not to be confused with former pitcher kevin brown was suspended because he made a comment about how poor the orioles record had been playing at the tampa bay rays the context was they're playing better now than they did in the prior two seasons. That's that's it. It's objective. And he was suspended for that. It's fucking insane. And Me- this is like one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of. Meanwhile, Australian broadcasters can get away with swearing on national outlets, which I like. I mean, to be fair, it seems like things like ass, damn, and hell are allowed. You know, mild, generic profanity. Nothing else. Uh... Fuck, I can't believe that. If we keep this up, this episode's going to have a lot of references, which I'm totally in favor of. This episode has a lot of internet things. By the way, he's Ethan Castle. I'm Benjamin Castle. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is next to Ethan. And we're back together in South San Francisco, California, because Ethan's spooktaculars are done for. I'm tired. I'm glad to be back home. And soon enough, the sports that you cover will be starting up again. I realize, actually, there will be some overlap with Round 24, but the way the schedule works out, that's that's fine. The Round 24 schedule, by the way, has been announced. And sorry, Carlton fans. Fuck them kids. Look, 6 p.m. is not that late on a Sunday, though. Unless you have to drive, like, five hours to get there. I'm glad that there's no overlap on Sunday, but Richmond and Port being a noon local bounce is not right. That's a nighttime game. Yeah, that's, that's like meant to be, you have to have Never Tear Us Apart at night for that game to work. I'm sorry. I mean, I get that they don't want another huge game to go up against Geelong and the Bulldogs, which is probably make or break for at least one of those clubs. I mean, I see scenarios in which both can get in, but it would probably rely on Geelong winning that game, is the point. And uh, speaking of the dogs, they definitely did themselves some favors at the start of round 21, winning 19-12. 126 to 10 11 71 over the Tigers at Marvel Stadium. We called what would happen here. Yeah, this was kind of predictable. What happens when Trent Cotchin and Dustin Martin get managed? You get absolutely killed in the contest. Of all the games to manage your guys for, this was not the one. Against that top heavy dogs midfield, you need someone extra up at those stoppages to compete. Dustin Martin would have been the ideal person for that. Instead, He was just sitting there watching a game progressively go further and further away from the Tigers. Yeah, this one was 
over very quickly. A 57.9 goal first quarter for the Dogs, and it really never got much closer or more respectable from there. The contested possession margin, by the way, was plus 38 in favor of the Dogs, 152 to the Tigers' 114. That's telling. Tomlin retorted with 18 of those to lead the pack. I made the right call in making him my captain this week. Really, this whole thing, we're going to sound like that family guy cutaway of a black woman in hindsight. I told you. What did I tell you? Didn't I tell you? Because I told you. Mm-hmm. And when did I tell you? A long time ago. And what did I say will happen when I told you? Exactly what just happened. It's really funny when things go like this, where there's like such an obvious flaw in a game plan that we could see it from a mile away. Or in this case, across an entire ocean. Yeah, like, of course the dogs are going to have that pace. They're going to stay inside. They're going to build with short possessions. Andrew McCulture realized that would be something that Richmond needed to cut off. He talked about it in pregame interviews. Well, if you don't have the list to do that, good luck. I just found the whole thing really funny because for the most part, people making decisions in football are much smarter than we are, much smarter than the general observer is. Not this time. Richmond were having their way with stoppage clearances early on, and I believe did win that for the game, they were, yeah, they were plus six on stoppage and plus four overall for the game, but it wasn't necessarily the immediate clearance success that mattered. It was keeping those contests there and the dogs being able to gain possession shortly thereafter. Richmond committed 11 more turnovers. It was 59 to 48 there. The Bulldogs steadily possessed the ball more and were able to get better deliveries as a result. Jabari Hagen with his third five goal game, which was great. When he's on, there are a few more entertaining players, especially in the forward line. Another thing I loved was, while this was going on, Kane Corns was asking if he can't understand why the Bulldogs were, quote, scratching to make the eight. The answer is they didn't need to adjust in this game. When they don't have to adjust and can just ride the talent, it usually goes pretty well. And that's exactly what happened here. Really, the only other notable things I can think of from this game, just Jack Ross continuing to do good things. We're going to put together a pleasant surprise team as part of our early off-season content, probably something in October, and Jack Ross will probably be on that side. I didn't think of him as being even near the 18 at the start of the year, and there's no question he is there now as one of their kind of middle-height or taller wing players who's able to generate good possessions and generally is a, is a pretty good kick for goal. And then uh, some interesting stuff with the graphics on 7, temporarily showing Artie Jones getting subbed on for Artie Jones. Did you catch that at all, Ethan? I did not. I was not paying clo anywhere near close enough attention for that. Well, what? By that time, it was probably... Game was out of reach. And it was 7-something a.m. where you were? Yeah. But yeah, Artie Jones got subbed on for himself. It's like taking playing yourself to a new level. Congratulations, you played yourself. Really, that soundbite does apply more to Richmond in this case, who definitely have some work to do now as they find themselves in 13th at 9-10-1. They can't afford another loss. And that Saints game, middle Sunday, the uh, national game for Sunday on 7, uh, that's juicy. Combine their recent troubles with how the Saints have been able to turn things around a bit lately. We'll get into them near the end of the show. Obviously, the result wasn't there for them, but we're liking the way that they were attacking the game in the first half. And that's a potential eliminator for the Tigers right then and there. I'm surprised we have so little to say about it, but that's because... For us, the result was predictable. I just didn't agree with Richmond's decision to manage not just one key player, but two here. I mean, that was what puzzled me, managing them both. 
unless you're making finals isn't a priority, which I mean, I understand as wide open as things appear, you know, getting those extra couple weeks of rest and really gearing up for next season. Maybe that's your best plan if you're really looking at not just making the eight, but winning doesn't help. It's like you're you're right here. Also, you don't have your first round pick and you look at the remaining three games. You know, I know you would suggest that maybe it would be too late to rest guys if you did it against North. Maybe, you know, rest could have been rest caution for this game and then rest dusty for North. I don't know. Either way, this was just dumb and it was pretty obvious from the outset. And it's something that looks like it will cost the Tigers their last chance in September. I mean, your best hope is win out. I don't have anything to play for round 24. I don't see them winning at Port. And I think the way things currently line up, Port probably will have something to play for there. Take your pick for best on ground, I guess, between Marcus Bond and Pelly and Tom Libertori. I assume that it's going to be Bond with three votes and Libba with two. Bond and Pelly racked up 32 disposals, 11 score involvements. 10 clearances, 9 tackles, and 549 meters, while also scoring 3 goals, 1. Bond was the one to get the 10 coaches' votes, by the way. You know, that, that tends to be telling. Libertore with 31, those 18 contested possessions, 12 tackles, 10 clearances, 10 scored involvements, and 516 meters. There is no more dangerous duo with stoppage. Maybe I'm a little short-sighted at saying that because Clayton Oliver's been out. I don't know, I still think in terms of just the sheer numbers they rack up, Maybe, maybe it's there from, you know, like the eye test versus that, but I insist on it. Adam Trelore with 32 disposals and nine score involvements. Bailey Dill, 30 and 663 meters. A big ground gainer with how often he's kicking from halfback, mostly on the wings. Taylor Militia goal from 29 hitouts, 19 disposals, eight marks and seven tackles, taking on that kind of dual matchup of Toby Nankervis and Yvonne Soldo pretty well. Jaffa Cray, 24 disposals and 11 score involvements. Latham Vanderbeer racked up 21, one of their more versatile players. Ed Richards had 20 in the back. So did Caleb Daniel going more forward. He kicked two goals. Don't usually see him kicking two. Jamar Uglehey, we mentioned he scored five. He kicked 5-1 from 15. And welcome back, Liam Jones. 10 intercept possessions, largely playing on Noah Cumberland when he had to play 1v1 and forcing some decent ground pressure on him as well. Cumberland is such an instinct player that that wasn't a great matchup for him to begin with. You said that you don't usually see Caleb Daniel kicking two. He's had four prior two goal games in his career, the most recent of which was in 2017. Yeah, so hasn't happened since we started watching. The dogs with 108 more disposals, 18 more inside 50s. They were nearly 9% more efficient inside 50. The Tigers did win hitouts 54 to 34, but the Bulldogs only committed 48 turnovers for the game. Turnovers, 59-48. Committing 59 is not a lot, but only 48 for the Dogs is pretty unbelievable. And they were able to capitalize off those turnovers for Richmond, a lot of which came in the midfield. Marks inside 50, 18-10 in favor of the Dogs, and tackles 76-56, to also going to the Dogs. On Richmond's side, Jaden Short, 25 disposals, 7 marks, 569 meters. Welcome back. Tim Taranto, 25 disposals, 7 tackles. Dion Prestia, 21 disposals, 7 clearances. Noah Balta, 15 disposals and 12 intercepts. Unfortunately, been a rough year for Noah Cumberland, and that continued here, another 8 turnovers. Still don't really know what role they're trying to have him play. They seemed like they were trying to have him play some of that dusty forward 50 role this week. Doesn't have the frame for and isn't as composed of a player yet. I don't think this staff knows what his best role is. Maybe it's just playing on after the siren. Saturday, Essendon 10-13-73.
defeating the West Coast Eagles 11-6-72. Fuck. This, it would have been so cool if you guys pulled this one off, but like I felt better about this game, so much better than I did about the win against North the prior week. That felt like a game that they blew and North lost more than the Eagles won it in the fourth. Seemed like, the, you know, this was just a good competitive showing, and unfortunately I couldn't finish it off. Looked like Essendon's inaccuracy was going to cost them early on. They only kicked 1-6 in the first quarter when I thought. Otherwise, they played decently well, even though they were a bit slow to get to some of the clearances. For the Eagles, it was just their fifth first quarter win for the year. A lot of uncontested marks there as well, but Essendon took that away from them from the second quarter onward, having their forwards pressuring more once West Coast gained possession in the defensive 50. They went down from 43 marks in the first quarter to just 15 in the second. So smart adjustment there. Still, though, when the Eagles were able to get out of defense, get over the top, it was far too easy for them to go forward. Still problems with Essendon's defensive depth, which is nothing new. We've kind of seen it all year. But the Ballers did lead by 23 at halftime and 17 at three-quarter time. Eagles missed a couple chances to capitalize off turnovers early in the fourth quarter. Noah Long was unlucky to not get a front-on free kick from Mason Redmond once they worked it back to an 11-point margin midway through the fourth. And for a bit, we thought Ryan Merrick was going to be for a hero. He got the goal with a minute 40 left, loved him grabbing the jumper, showing it to the crowd. Clearly, this, this kid wants to stay and be a part of something on the West Coast, which is something that I always worry about for Victorian prospects, especially. I would love for him and Oscar Allen to really be the forward answer at this point. But Essendon got a center clearance. It was Darcy Parrish against Tim Kelly. They got inside 50. And when Jai Menzi was able to control the ball, I just let out this scream of no. It really was more like no. Oh, my God. How could he do that? And so the hero ended up being Kyle Langford, who scored five. Kyle Langford is Essendon. We've established this already. They are so much better when he is in, and obviously Ford is the right spot for him. We've been questioning whether the defensive depth would necessitate him playing further back, but we're looking stupid now. He's been too good as a forward to move back, despite the fact that they do have other good forwards and that they still do have something to figure out defensively. Brandon Zirk Thatcher was better. I don't know, his last couple of games, he's been better. And he got that last intercept mark to seal the win as well. Other than, when I'm thinking about what West Coast could have done to win it, other than missing those chances in the fourth, they didn't pressure enough for a lot of the third quarter. When they were going with such high pressure, really for the prior six quarters, I could understand a bit of a letdown, but in hindsight, in, in a one-goal game, it's something that stands out. Didn't think it was a super well-played game, in all honesty which makes sense considering Essendon nearly lost to the Eagles. Yes, West Coast have been playing a lot better as of like they've just looked more in tune with an actual game plan and with each other. They look like a team. We're a team. But that Essendon adjustment against the West Coast uncontested game mattered a lot. And we saw some good field kicking on debut as well from Elijah Sadas. We've been wondering when he'd get the chance considering some of the lacking midfield and forward production. Missed a chance to get a debut goal but still liked the early signs from him. If you're the Eagles, the disappointment does not lie at all in your performance in this game. It lies entirely in, man, we played our butts off and just couldn't get points out of it and didn't get to celebrate a win over a good team. I mean, I guess 
good can be subjective. I think the perception and an understandable one is that this Essendon team do not belong in the eight. And as they've taken advantage of a soft schedule, they'll need to change our minds over the next three weeks. At minimum, Essendon is in like the, you know, top 12 to 13 teams, which is a pretty tightly contested pack this year. It's just they're probably not in the best eight. Having said that, the Eagles do have a win over a team that's currently in the eight and has been on fire. Uh, big stats for the Bombers. Darcy Parrish, goal, 33 disposals, 17 contested possessions, 13 score involvements, 9 clearances. Nick Hine, 31 disposals, 592 meters gained. Hine has been a lot more active these past few weeks. I'm wondering if Nick Cox being in there has allowed him to play a bit more freely, and he's just also had more time steadily in the 22, whereas he'd been a reasonable pick for a sub early on of the season. Zach Merritt, 29 disposals, 11 score involvements, 8 tackles, 7 marks, 492 meters. I've, I've had this question about Merritt for a bit, where would it make sense, maybe, because you know he's got very high motor, he's always on the ground, would it make more sense maybe to get him to the bench a little bit more so that he could play higher quality minutes, or is his quantity what makes him such a good play? I'm still not clear on the answer. I think it has to be balanced somewhat with Darcy Parrish's output, which obviously was also high in this game. I think the two of them are better when they're on the oval together, which complicates matters there. Dyson Heppel, 23 disposals, 7 marks. Sam Durham, a goal off, 22 disposals. Mason Redmond, also a goal off, 22 disposals. He gained 535 meters. This was his 100th game, as well as Alex Witherden's for the Eagles. Brandon Zirk Thatcher, 17 disposals, 10 intercepts, 7 marks. Yeah, I've, I've liked his performance the last couple weeks, and that loss to the Swans as well, I thought he was pretty good. Kyle Langford, five goals, three behinds, 13 disposals, seven marks. Bombers, the less efficient team overall, the Eagles, 80.4% disposal efficiency. You know, that is a bit inflated by some of the uncontested play they have in the back, especially in the first quarter when they took 43 marks. I know, but still, to be over 80% for a game in any case is pretty cool. And to do it as the losing team is a little more surprising. Bombers with 10 more free kicks, 22 to 12. Hitouts favoring Essendon, 52 to 13. What happened? Uh, Nick Bryan and the retiring Andrew Phillips having their way there. Just that's what it was. Bailey Williams, not one of his stronger hitout games in general. Clearances, 39 to 29 Essendon because they won him 29 to 20 in stoppages. They recorded 35 more contested possessions, 132 to 97. Something that a young team will need to work at. Give it a year or two, they'll have better pieces there other than just Tim Kelly. Still, it's like you can look at this and see building blocks. You can see a path forward. You can see where a game was nearly won. Can't be too disappointed. I mean, the disappointment really comes from knowing now that Shannon Hearn and Luke Shuey are both retiring and that neither of them may get another win. I mean, I guess you think your best chance would have to be Western Derby this week, right? Or a freak round 24 against the Crows to farewell them. Who's round 23? I know it's on the road. You're not beating the Dogs. No, probably not. Nah, I think the Dogs beat them by 101 last year. Yeah, I think Rio's probably your best chance. Look, you got two more home games. You got a chance there. And you know who'd like it the most? North. Percentage-wise, North still have a huge cushion, so the Eagles would have to win another game. And yes, they were trying to win this game. Fuck you, Corns. Corns and Hutchie from Footy Classified like, were, were very opposed to each other on that. Like, 
basically it was just what Hutchinson said was like with like a minute left down one, they're not going to like pull out all the stops, which like that isn't the most outlandish take, but I think it's untrue. You could see how much the guys wanted to win this game. Tim Kelly, unsurprisingly, the Eagles best. He's probably winning the John Morsefield medal this year. 30 disposals, 10 marks at 486 meters. Liam Duggan with 29 and 698 meters. Jaden Hunt, 24 disposals, 7 marks and 497 meters gained. I imagine he'll rank pretty highly as well. Andrew Gaff with 23. 100th gamer Alex Witherden, 22 and 9 marks. Tom Cole, 21 disposals at 11 marks. He had, I think, 14 disposals in the first quarter. And Luke Edwards reached 20 as well. Also want to credit Jack Petrocelli. Didn't get huge numbers, but the speed that he had produced some of the Eagles' best moments. And I think he's going to be an important player in these next few years for West Coast because he'll be able to run with some of those younger players. I love players who, you know, aren't completely on the young side anymore, but still have that speed and can be a nice piece to supplement a younger core you're building. I guess that's something that we'll have to look forward to for ice hockey as well. San Jose Sharks fans with Mikhail Grandlund coming to town. If there is anyone in our audience whatsoever with some overlap there, I'd be shocked. No, I think we I think we do have a couple people listening or at least following us online who are from the Bay Area or at least our Bay Area sports team fans as well. Adelaide 13-11-89, defeating Gold Coast 9-7-61, 32-3 after a quarter, 52-24 at half. Suns did make a decent push to get it down to 11 at one point early in the fourth, but that was as close as they could get, and then... Will Powell likely broke his leg again. Dude cannot catch a break. Yeah, he's having, looks like, ankle surgery. But he was down, and you saw them bring out the green whistle, and was like, oh, fuck, not again. Last time we saw the green whistle, I think, was for uh, Brandon Walker, Terry's patellar tendon. I mean, it's not that uncommon a sight, unfortunately. But when you see it, you know it's bad. And for it to happen to Powell again, there was ligament damage in his left ankle, and last year, it was a broken and dislocated right ankle against, I think it was also the Crows. He had been a pretty pivotal player in this game up until that point. Really pivotal all year for them, especially once Lockie Weller slipped in form and went down again as one of their more solid movers for the back. So what I really noticed with Powell was, you know, he struggled early and then settled in. He was kind of the barometer for their defense. The other biggest things I noticed in this game... Malcolm Roses could end up being very high up on assist leaderboards if deployed correctly because he has a really accurate field kick. I really like watching him. When you mentioned big, I thought you were just going to talk about James Borlace's shoulders. Yes, his shoulders are huge. It, it, it's weird because, like, we're not getting the view, like, from the back. You know, we're not seeing him shirtless or anything, but he looks like Machoke or Machamp, the Pokemon, with how big his shoulders are. It's like his arms are long. His shoulders are just, like, they look almost like they've been inflated or something. James Borlase is built like an elite NFL linebacker. Super broad-shouldered, 6'3", 223 pounds. Interesting thing about him, his father, Daryl Borlase Daisy, was a Port Adelaide Premiership captain in the Sandful. But because James was born in Egypt and because of zoning, he was eligible for the Crows Next Generation Academy. So that's why he's playing for Port's rivals. If we're doing an NFL draft breakdown thing, we need like some sort of heartbreaking news about him, you know? And yeah, we have that music playing, but I, I couldn't find anything heartbreaking. Just damn good on his debut. 18 disposals, 9 marks. Really looked like he belonged there in a younger Crows backline by necessity with no Tom Duday, no Nick Murray, no Jordan Butts, but like the early signs from him and also from the second game in for Mark Teen. 
I really liked Keen in this game. He had one play in the middle of the field to set up the final goal of the game. It was really nice where he just kind of swiped a Brandon Ellis handball and started a kick sequence the other way. He just looked solid overall. And I think what's really fun about the Gaelic footballers that make the crossover is just their instincts and ability to operate on the fly. It's kind of a stereotype that fits just about all of them. And it's a stereotype I would love to have. Keen with 10 intercepts as well, played damn well on Charlie Dixon for most of Showdown 54 as well. We've been really worried about Adelaide's backline going into the year. We didn't expect these two to be part of that solution. Also, I just love that Mark Keen is doing this while wearing number 48. As we've said, it was the only number that hadn't been represented in the game yet this year, so it was cool to see. There are only two 48s on AFL lists. The other is Steely Green for Richmond, which is an amazing name. That's like a Hall of Fame quality name. Other than that, what else did I notice in this game? Uh, Josh Rochelle wasn't heavily involved, but when the Crows kind of brought him back to a half-forward spot around the center square, it worked really well, and it helped set up a couple of goals. So I liked seeing that. Another good game out of Matt Crouch, wondering, you know, what's his future going to be? Is he going to stick around and have that steadier AFL spot, or does he want to go to another contender? He's a Ballarat native, obviously. His brother Brad plays for St. Kilda. If he's willing to go westward, I'd love for him to be an eagle for a couple years. Still just 28. You know, that could be another option for Geelong if you can't get, like, Parrish or something. And it looks like they're not. The Crows' defense is really going to... Okay, I've, I've got to use the pun. It's going to hinge on Josh Worrell. When he plays well, you forget that they're missing Jordan Butts and Tom Dude And Nick Murray. Yeah, Mitch Hinge has done a really good job getting the ball lately. He had a game high. 31 disposals, 14 intercepts, and 7 marks. Yeah, game high along with Matt Crash. I, I mean, I think of Hinge as more of the kick rather than the mark. He's been forced into more of that aerial role with the outs that the Crows have. But we can see a blueprint for them to move further up the ladder next year. The other thing I noticed out of this game, the Crows getting multiple goals out of ruck contests, which just shouldn't be happening when you have Jared Witts. And I think that's one of those things where when you have a new coach... You just haven't been able to implement things like, you know, how are we going to come out of ruck contests and stuff like in our own 50? Like what sort of set plays might we have? Yeah. That's a case where maybe Wits himself needs to take charge and orient some of that. I don't know. Either way, it's just you can't give up goals off of stuff like that, especially, again, when you have one of the best hitout weapons in the entire sport. Matt Crouch matched Hinge with 31 disposals, had a goal and seven tackles. Brody Smith is behind, 26 disposals, 8 marks, he gained 644 meters. Rory Laird, 24 disposals, 13 contested possessions, 7 clearances and an octopus. Jordan Dawson, a goal, a behind, 23 disposals and 8 tackles. Darcy Fogarty, 3 goals, 2 behinds, 19 disposals, 12 contested possessions, 10 marks, 8 tackles. Did not expect him to be as high in the contested area there. I mean, some of it was some groundwork, which was a bit surprising, obviously a strong Contested mark is no surprise. The Crows were nearly 11% more efficient with their disposals inside 50, which goes online with some of what you were saying earlier about the Suns lacking some structure in their forward 50. There were also plus 17 in clearances, including plus 11 from stoppage. Sam Flanders led the Suns with 27 disposals. Rory Atkins had 29 and gained 692 meters. Noah Anderson kicked a point from 22 disposals. Before he came off, Will Powell actually racked up 20 with 9 intercepts, 8 marks, and 493 meters. Sucks that 
there are these long-term injuries for the same players again for the Suns next year, just going to mess up their structure again. I think having Rory Atkins in right away will help solve some of that, but it can't be the entire answer there. So actually, I mean, I'm not sure how much hunting they'll need to do in the offseason because they clearly got a deep VFL list. They're right there near the top of the ladder along with Werribee. Jared Wicks, 39 hitouts and 19 disposals, but coming off those hitouts, the Suns weren't able to play as effectively. And our Matt Rowell appreciation continues. Kicked a goal from 16 disposals, 14 contested possessions, and 7 tackles. I want good things for the Suns. I think, wouldn't most footy fans want good things for the Suns? Or do they just want the expansion teams to crumble? I think, I think there are enough likable personalities on the Suns and likable players that make people be okay with them, but we'll see what happens if slash when they hire Damian Harbuck. Well, I love when he gets interviewed, so I'll support that. What's the legality of marijuana on the Gold Coast? Let him do whatever he wants. Uh, here he won neither of us saw coming. The youngest side of the round beating the oldest. Hawthorne 16-9, 105, defeating Collingwood 11-7-73. The Retro Hawk was back and in full force. It and looked awesome, by the way, um, especially with the long sleeves that James Sicily and Chad Wingard wore. Forgot to mention the dogs also went retro. I liked it. It was kind of loud, but it was fun. I wouldn't mind them wearing that like once or twice a year. Yeah, the, the Diamond Dog, they played horribly the first time they wore those. I think it was in 95 and 96. I like the look, though. Yeah, and you're going to see both South Australian teams having some different jumpers for round 22. Porter going retro. And the Crows bringing back their Gather round. jumper for a road clash, which is interesting. But yeah, Hawthorne, where the hell did this come from? Uh, Dominating uncontested possessions from the beginning, plus 33 uncontested in the first quarter, able to get out from clearance really easily. Let, let's just state the, the biggest stats here to start telling some of the story. Plus 97 in disposals, plus 99 on kicks when they're off at a handballing team plus 16 inside 50s, plus 63 marks, and how about 18 to 3 from center clearance? You don't expect that margin anywhere, especially against Collingwood, even though the Pies clearance numbers have been a concern as of late. They actually did win clearances this game because they were plus 17 from stoppage, but since round, I think, 9 or so, entering this round, Collingwood had slipped from 5th in clearance margin to 15th, and evidently they've got some work to do in the center still. Tom Mitchell needs to play better. He was subbed off again. And with Nick Dacos being rendered ineffective by a tag and then suffering a hairline fracture in his knee that's going to keep him out for six weeks, they'll need to retool. Finn McGinnis put the clamps on. Yeah, forced Nick to go to full forward at times. McGinnis, I don't think, gets nearly enough respect for the tagging job he's able to put on. I know he's been in and out of the 22 at times, but you're able to have him completely neutralize a player like that? You've got to keep him in. Now, some people will question how much his impact may be overstated considering what kind of injuries Nick Dacos carried into the game and how he tried to play through them. Even if you're a Carlton fan, this Nick Dacos injury sucks. I'm really curious how the team's going to play without him. I think we all are. And we've seen, you know, he's put up such great numbers and accumulated a lot. While playing in a few different spots on the offense, has really moved further downfield as the season's progressed, going from their kickout guy to being there in the center square. But I think it'll it'll be a good chance for us to learn how truly valuable is he. And not just that, the Pies suffered another injury in this game as well with Nathan Murphy. It's a low-grade syndesmosis injury for Murphy, and so that's a two- to three-week timeline there. 
And with Darcy Moore having slipped in form as well, and his kicking having not been as good, need to be able to make up for his intercepting ability, clear spot for Billy Frampton to come in and play largely in the back. Or just bring Mason Cox back in. I mean, Mason may find his way back in anyway, but I think in terms of a backline player there, Frampton is a more natural solution. In terms of what you do, though, in the center square, it's really concerning because of Nick's the impact Nick Dacos has been able to have there. Meanwhile, limited numbers from Tom Mitchell and Scott Pendlebury there. I know Pendlebury has been criticized a bit as of late for his struggles in the center square, so you got to back in Taylor Adams there. You got to lead on Jordan Ngoi a lot more, and whoever they may bring up from the VFL will have a tough task there. I mean, I'd love for Finn McRae or Josh Carmichael to finally get some more action there and be able to dig out some of those set of clearances. In terms of, you know, what you expected in this game versus what actually happened, I think none of us saw Hawthorne winning, but if you said that they were going to win by kicking their ass on center clearances, you'd say, yeah, that that kind of checks out. It does. Um, what else did we see? We saw Dylan Moore having another one of his man-possessed first quarters, which we saw a few times last season and a couple early on this year. You saw Harry Morrison being really hungry to get back into the action. Harry! His first AFL game in four weeks, first in the 22-5. and five. So yeah, Dylan Moore and Harry Morrison both kicking two goals, both getting above 20 disposals. Moore with 22, Morrison with 21. But where else did Hawthorne win this game? Who do you think? James Sicily. When he is not checked, when you don't have somebody constantly playing on him, he will rack up his intercepts. We've seen this the past few weeks. Said Kilda put Cooper Sharman on him. Severely limited him. North Melbourne put Eddie Ford on him. We love Eddie Ford. And for good reason. Severely limited Sicily. We had this discussion after the Saints game last week where I was asking, you know, is it worth it to kind of tag a defender? Well, clearly based on his performances here against Collingwood and then in the one-point loss to Richmond where they didn't put somebody on him, the answer is yes. Yeah, it's, it's funny because... I still really think there's, you know, if you have enough forward options, you could just play keep away. He's so adept at getting to the ball, though, that the solution is to have somebody manning up against him. And that's something that I think the Bulldogs will need to do this week in Launceston. Will Luke Beveridge do it? I kind of doubt it. The Bulldogs do have enough tall forwards, at least, that it would make sense. The thing is, knowing their inability or just opposition to adjusting mid-game. It's either going to happen from the start or it's not going to happen. I want to see Rory Lobb plastered on James Sicily the whole game. That would be so fun because you could also see that getting pretty violent. Oh, that's part of it. Also, I think that would be the right player to have on him considering size and also, you know, keeping Aaron Naughton and Jamar Eugle Hagen free. See, so yeah, Lobb is the, the player that I'd have there. Well, I'll mention this again in the round 22 preview. You know, we thought last week was, all right, this is what Collingwood needed uh, now what? I mean, the trends really continued for him. You know, backs aren't necessarily against the wall. There's still a game clear for first. Yeah, that's not the issue. It's This season is not going to be defined by their regular season record. This is about winning a flag because for so much of the year, they've looked like the team that should do it. For weeks now, I've said they've only got one challenger and it's Melbourne. Now that's opened up a bit. I still contend that Melbourne are the top challenge for them. I think they're a team that could lose to just about anyone on the right day, though. I think a lot's been exposed here. They struggled with ground balls, clearances, possession time, 
Hawthorne had 45% possession for the match compared to 35% for Collingwood. 56 to 31 for the fourth quarter. Pies have had a much more difficult time retaining the ball. You know, they're not an uncontested team, so it makes sense why their numbers aren't great, but these are warning signs. I just hate that we have to face them coming off back-to-back losses. I just can't see them as a team that loses three in a row. To be fair, and we'll get into this in a bit, I also didn't see Port losing four in a row. Just everything went right for Hawthorne in this game. And the pieces that we were curious about potentially being on the fringe of their 22, really, most of the players returning had positive impacts. We already talked about Harry Morrison. Jack Scrimshaw was solid in defense. Sam Frost was not missed. Jacob Kaczynski competed well in the air as well throughout the ground. Hawthorne's depth showed. I mean, we've said they have, you know, 30-ish guys that can play at the AFL level. It's just a matter of figuring out which ones and making sure that you don't have, like, the game Denver Granger Barras gave a few weeks ago. You mean the Tony Snell game? Yes, that is exactly what I meant. It was it was all in here, and it worked. When they worked things out in the third quarter, going from 11 points up at halftime to, to 26 up at three-quarter time, they scored incredibly efficiently from inside 50s. They had six scores from their first eight inside 50s of the third quarter. It was a high-pressure game throughout from the Hawks. You had the right pieces in in there from the beginning. Chad Wingard kept up with some of his pressure as well, when we'd really been questioning his longevity. And amazingly, even, even BT might have admitted that Collingwood were out of this game somewhat early in the fourth quarter. It never felt like that push was going to be there. Sorry, I, I've just received word that the Pies are still a chance at the GABA. That, that is true. You know, they've got such a great history of coming back. But yeah, once Luke Bruce got the opening goal of the fourth quarter, you felt pretty good, you know, up 31. And then shortly after that, Jai Newcomb got another. Then Nick Dacos and Nathan Murphy went out. And that that was really it. I would say the first goal of the fourth was the really big one, though. You know, going up 31, six kicks, That's that'll do it. So round 21 is now the latest in a season that a team has won a game from 15 or more spots below on the ladder. Thank you, Swamp, for that. And again, it was the youngest team beating the oldest team that makes it even more remarkable. Are the Pies too old? Too slow? God, if the Cats beat them this week, I am never going to shut up about that. James Sicily led the way with 37 disposals, 19 marks, 11 intercepts, and 515 meters. You gotta put somebody on him, it's that simple. A 31 disposal, 9 mark performance for Connor Nash. This was also a game where you could appreciate Will Day's versatility. A behind from 29 disposals, 7 clearances, and 7 marks. You can put him behind the ball to shore up things defensively, have him receive from Newcomb and Nash off contest. Needs to be a bit more of a reliable set shot, but that can be fixed. Newcomb, by the way, kicking 1-1 from 28. Chad Wingard with 26 disposals. Josh Ward was a rising star nominee last year, I believe. Had 23 disposals and 9 marks. Along with Dylan Ward, Harry Morrison, Mitchell Lewis had 2 goals. He kicked 2-1 from 16 disposals and 10 marks. Really not a lot of big stat hauls for Collingwood. I mean, Darcy Moore with another 10 intercept game. Not 10 intercept marks, though. And remember, if you get to 11, Gil will murder you on the oval. Kind of like how horses just get shot on the track. Same sort of deal. I mean, they don't get shot these. I mean, I guess euthanized with an ejection, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jack Crisp behind 27 disposals, 8 marks, 547 meters. 
Scott Pendlebury, a goal, 23 disposals, and seven tackles. Again, he needs to be able to have more of that impact off the center bounces, and Chris will need to step up there as well. I know you've been critical of him these past few weeks, as have some other people. He wasn't as bad in this game. Uh, Taylor Adams would have been nice for him to do something. Yeah, limited to no possessions in the first quarter. I still won, but if I had played Grian over him, would have had much bigger haul. In fact, Brian was actually my highest scorer this week, and he was sitting on my bench. Again, still one. I guess we'll just lead off with Brian Myers then talking about uh, Geelong's 12-point win over Port, the Cats 14-13-97, defeating the Power 12-13-85. Brian with a rare multi-goal game and five assists. Is that a new career high? Yeah. Um, this was one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had watching a game because I was doing it with shit Wi-Fi. Like, the one hotel I've stayed at all summer that had bad Wi-Fi, and of course it's during, like, Grian's best game. You've gone back and appreciated it since. Yeah, I still haven't really watched it in, like, its fullest form while, like, wide awake, but that'll all happen. I mean, you also slept through the first quarter. Yeah, whenever I sleep during the first quarter, it's a really good home win, it seems like. Or, well... I forget if the Richmond game last year was technically a home game. I think that was actually a Richmond. Okay, either way, very fun, close wins every time I sleep through the start of a game. Maybe I need to do this by design. Both clubs came into this game banged up. No Blitzobs or Hawkins for the Cats. For Port, no Alira Lear, no Lockie Jones, no Charlie Dixon, no Kane Farrell, no Miles Bergman, no Jeremy Finlayson. Though admittedly, they, they weren't missing much in terms of that forward output because Willie Rioli was really left unchecked, played the most freely we'd ever seen him in the forward line. Really, that, that deepest forward target is not a spot where we usually see him, and he thrived there. Yeah, Jake Kolajashny was really the one negative I saw out of this game from a Geelong standpoint. Uh, he was just kind of left trying to catch up to Rioli pretty much all game. I will say Geelong's tall defenders did really well. Now, that group took a bit of a hit as Jack Henry got hurt. He ended up getting subbed out and turns out to be a wrist rank injury that could hold him out for the remainder of the season. Definitely not going to be seeing him for a while. I, if you see him again this year, that would be a great thing because it would mean you're on a pretty deep finals run, I would have to imagine, or he makes an insanely quick recovery. So, wrist ranks tend to have reasonably long timelines. So, you look at how much time. Players like uh, Tom McDonald missed last year, for example, for Melbourne. So, yeah, you, you got to prepare for the rest of the season without Jack Henry. So, more prominent man role, perhaps, for Asava Radagalea and Cole Jashny unquestionably has to be better. Hang on, let me just... I'm not as worried about Asava, considering how well the tall defenders did in this game. Like, the, you know, there were a couple of contested Todd Marshall marks, where it's like, he's one of the best contested marking forwards in the entire sport, and I'm just not going to be too upset about him getting one if you're covering him. You know, if you leave him open, that's unacceptable. But if you're covering him and he still gets a couple, you know, that's kind of inevitable. And as long as you have both Tom Stewart and Sam Bacconi, if Asaba's that number three tall, then I really like him. It's tough when you put him in the spotlight as the number one or two guy. Like, I'm sure on a lot of teams, he would be the number one or two small de uh, tall defender. On this team, he's not, and it's one of the reasons this team's defense is so good. But this was kind of the blueprint you need to follow if you're going to have success as Geelong. You know, a midfield that's not great, but good enough. Guys took on contest well. You've done a good, no, a great, no, a good job.
I never would consider what they did great, but it was it was solid. Mitch Duncan had a masterful fourth quarter. Tom Atkins was getting dirty all night. Patrick Dangerfield, pretty active. But it was the the forward pressure from the smaller forwards that I just loved. It wasn't just Brian. He had Brad Close doing it. He had Tyson Stengel doing it. And you know who really stepped it up with Tom Hawkins out? Ollie Henry. What a day for Collingwood fans to just have a sook between losing to Hawthorne and then Ollie Henry kicking three in the first quarter and four for the game. To add some fire to that rematch for Friday night. And yes, the forward pressure was fabulous. We'd seen some of that from Stengel last year. An underrated part of his game, considering it was more of a focus on the goal output that got into the All-Australian team last year. But against a team with a backline that can get exposed, you pressure them right there, their defensive 50, the holes will be there. I mean, you knew that Brad Close had this in him, and it was just great to see it utilized. Close, Stengel, Myers, the whole lot. I mean, as I've said about Brad Close, he's got so much speed and you got to find ways to utilize it. I want to see this happen again on Friday as well, especially with the shakier kicking that Darcy Moore's had and us being unsure of what that back line's going to look like. The whole progression of this game was a wild first quarter. Teams combined for 12 goals. Cats led by 13. Ended up going the half up by 17, but Port had kind of started to shift the game back. They got the final four scores of the second quarter, just all of them were behinds. And they did ride that momentum into the third, and this is where things got really scary. They kicked the first three goals of the third quarter, and they all came within a 90-second stretch of clock time. First, a really nice goal by Sam Powell Pepper that I'm really surprised wasn't a nominee this week. Although... The nominees this round were solid. I thought Powell Pepper's snap from a sharp angle that went over Asava before bouncing through should have been in there. Then you had a couple of nice plays by Dante Vicentini, who I really liked in this game. And one of the reasons that you can't come out of this game too upset if you're port is that you consider not just what you were missing, but the promise that guys like Vicentini showed. And there's reason to be optimistic about the remainder of the season. It's funny because earlier this year when they were going on their big run, it was like, oh, wow, Scott Lysette's back in peak form. This is what they were missing last year. And now that Vicentini's had to fill in, I think he's done a really nice job, and I think he could be a long-term solution there. Anyway, went back and forth in the third. Jack Bowes snapped a pretty long scoring drought. But the team hadn't just gone goalless for 30 minutes. They had gone scoreless for 30 minutes of game time and about 20 minutes of clock time. Brandon Parfit came in as a sub for Jack Henry, and I thought he actually did a pretty good job attacking the contest. Did enough that I wouldn't mind him being back in there again as sub. Cats kicked three straight behinds, but Todd Marshall marks in a pack and kicks the final goal of the third. Jalon does go into the fourth up by a point after a Jeremy Cameron set shot that came after the third quarter siren on what I thought was really one of the only iffy calls of the night, where Dan Houston got called for what I thought was a pretty soft push in the back. Marshall. Gets the opening goal of the fourth. Power then gets three straight behinds, have a chance to open it up, but Ollie Wines missed on the run and Connor Rosie hit the post. Jeremy Cameron gets the big answer after Dan Houston blocked him. That was all set up by a big run through the middle by Brian. Then Cameron misses left after a series of big marks, but Todd Marshall turns it over to Brian, who frees it up to Mitch Duncan for the go-ahead goal. Then Brian, with about five minutes left, Stretches the lead out to two goals, getting the holding the ball on Connor Rosie. Were you comfortable at that point once Grian had kicked the second? I was comfortable-ish, and then when Jason Horn Francis missed with 3.54 left to make it an 11-point game, I felt, 
pretty good. Having to make up two goals with four minutes to go and your opponent having control on the kick and like that, even the best teams will have trouble coming back from it. Love that Myers got the recognition he deserved for this game. That Duncan was able to lift in the fourth quarter was great. I know he'd been criticized, not just by you, but by a number of people over the past month or so for some inconsistency. You know, still a strong defensive midfielder, but his decision-making with the ball has been questionable and clearly tidied that up. Huge win. Still need to win two of the final three. Don't feel especially confident about any of them. It's funny the way, like, after the results this week, you don't want to face Collingwood coming off back-to-back losses because you just don't see many ways in which they lose three in a row, but they are banged up. On the other hand, the Saints, despite their loss, I liked how they played. And then the Bulldogs, I mean, we've voiced the concerns about that matchup already with midfield contests. This is going to be tough. If you get there, you'll have earned it. On the injury front, we mentioned Jack Henry. Also, big blow to Port Trent McKenzie suffered a knee injury. Looks like it's his PCL. We look at that a potential season ender then. I'm not sure on the severity of it yet. Four to five weeks, so could be back in finals. Seven coaches votes for Brian. Two goals of behind, 24 disposals, 12 score involvements, 10 marks, five assists. I think at this point, he'll have earned Brownlow votes and probably won maybe four games, which is pretty fucking awesome. Tom Stewart, solid as always in the back. 23 disposals, seven marks, 704 meters. Isaac Smith, after catching a lot of criticism the last few weeks, a goal, 22 disposals, and seven marks. I didn't think it was a standout performance for him, but he fit in well. Tom Atkins, 21 disposals, 11 contested possessions, seven marks. Patrick Dangerfield, a goal, a behind, 20 disposals, 486 meters. Mitch Duncan really gave what had been missing the prior couple weeks. A goal, a behind, 18 disposals, best of all, 13 contested possessions. When your speed isn't quite what he used to be, I mean, he's still decently quick, but when you're not super speedy, you got to be able to get in the physical side of things. And then Ollie Henry, four goals straight off of 10 score involvements, 65.3% efficiency inside 50 as a team to Ports 56, free kicks 31 to 19. I thought that one that set up Cameron's kick to set up a one point lead going into the fourth was soft. I didn't see too many other objectionable calls. I know other people were mad about the other call that Cameron got against Houston, but in any close game, you know that people are going to get unreasonably mad over a couple calls. Cats won hitouts 38 to 25. Port did take 25 more marks and recorded 22 more tackles, but I didn't think there was like a lack of physicality in this game. Zach Butters took out 10 coaches' votes and who knows, could get the three Brownlow votes. A goal from 30 disposals, 10 score involvements, 8 marks and 656 meters. We're going to go back probably after the season and figure out what the least deserving Brownlow votes were, and it'll probably be some sort of losing three-vote effort. Starting next year, I think we've talked about this before, just like needing to cast our own Brownlow votes. Yes. Connor Rosie kicked a point from 27 disposals and eight tackles. Ryan Burton at 25 and gained 682 meters. Jason Horn Francis kicked 1-2 from 23 and 9 marks, but that second miss was crucial and may have ended the game in a lot of respects. I thought he played well overall, though. That's did I. Riley Bonner had a behind from 17 disposals at 492 meters. First game for him in a bit. What's a Bonner? Dylan Williams, 16 and 9 marks, but he and Francis Evans drop another game. And in terms of the goal kicking, 
Todd Marshall kicked 2-1 from 10 disposals and 10 marks, and Willie Rioli, four goals straight from 11 disposals. Wasn't played on tightly enough, but still, I like how he played, you know, as a really mobile deep forward, even though you usually have one of your taller targets at that deepest spot. You know the drill. We're on Twitter, at AmericansBuddy. Personally, I am on at Castle Media. Grian Harambe is on Instagram, at CatNameGrian. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. You can see my best immaculate grids there. You can see Ethan's as well on his. And we're also on YouTube at Americans Footy as well. We'll definitely be more active in there in the offseason. Are we got ideas for like underrated moments of the 2022 season and just like underappreciated goals, things like that. GWS 12-13-85 defeated by Sydney 15-6-96. The streak is over. It stops at 7 and it's another road Sydney Derby victory for the Swans. So just have the Giants know we're at the showground for a while. As someone who watched, like, none of this game other than the last, like, two minutes, my knowledge is Toby Bedford got suspended. Yeah, there were there were a lot of suspensions from this game, actually. There may have been three of them. And that the Swans kicked 11 straight in the first half. Yeah, I really like the Swans forward strategy in this game, but you didn't have... A tall target playing up against Sam Taylor. He had Will Hayward following him and limiting his impact there. And then the Sydney Tolls were really focusing on getting balls down in contest for the smaller forwards to have their impact. So Will Hayward, Tom Papley, Chad Warner, Errol Golden playing upfield kicking 2-2. And it was another phenomenal game for Errol Golden. He was your Brett Kirk medalist. Thanks, Bezel. With those two goals, too, from 32 disposals, seven tackles, and 677 meters. From the very beginning, I recognized just how good Errol Golden is. We may have not realized how gifted of a kick for goal he is right away, though. Really, most of his touches are kicks, and both his goals were pretty impressive. One of them was one of the nominees for goal of the week. The other one, just a really powerful snap off one step that I took note of. That was in the fourth quarter and brought it out to a 16-point game with about 11 and a half to go. At that point, especially with it being a pretty rainy second half, and the rain had increased throughout the half. I was pretty comfortable in saying, all right, Swans have it from here. Without watching this game, it was easy to tell that conditions were bad because the teams combined for 191 turnovers. Yeah, and the scoring dried up, obviously, in the second half as well, which would have been indicative of that. So it got wet, but the scoring got dry. But rusty. But, um, rash? No, just like, gotta compensate, I guess. No, I'm thinking more like Cody Bellinger sitting there looking stoned. Like, how does the scoring dry up when it gets wet? It's like if Jaden Smith watched the footy. I will say Jaden Smith was actually a pretty decent Eric Andre guest. And I was mentioning suspensions. Yeah, there were three from this game. We already mentioned Bedford. That was for a dangerous tackle on Ali Florent around halftime. In the second quarter, Braden Campbell had some rough conduct against Lockie Whitfield. And then in the fourth... Benga Daniels was reported for high contact on Jake Lloyd. That ban was straight up accepted. So the two small half forwards who have been so productive for the Giants this year will both miss their trip to port. And for a team that's already on the fringe of finals, they're in eighth now. That is really, really costly. So a lot of damage coming out of this game for the Giants, even though they didn't get any injuries pro. Just pieces that are very hard to replace. Remaining schedule for them at port. Home against Essendon at Carlton. 
And that Carlton game is the last game of the home and away season, as I'd called for a few weeks. I mentioned that Sam Taylor was limited a lot, had a number of goals kicked on him early on, but he also had a couple key plays that were confirmed to be behinds on review in the fourth quarter that kept the game alive for longer than I expected it to go on. Giants worked it back to within a goal when Callan Ward and Toby Green scored in quick succession, and then Sam Witt's snap was touched by Sam Taylor just off the boot. I still felt confident in the Swans being able to close it out, and Hayden McLean was a really smart kick short. He had looked long. He looked to bomb it to the square to a contest there, and he'd had a really strong game as well. Tied his career high with four goals. He'd also done that two years ago in a game you want to forget because it was that game against the Cats where Jeremy Cameron wasn't paid the mark. Yeah, I, I'll just I'll just keep referring to the grand final and kicking their ass at home this year and coming out with two points we should have never taken at their place this year. Regardless, McLean made the right move there to pull it to Warner. Warner finished it off with the staff. 13 points, four minutes left in the rain. That was a dagger. And so the Swans, they're right there as well. 10-9-1, they're in 10th. Just a half game behind the Giants, percentage behind the Cats. They're not done yet. Amazingly, no. And a very winnable game this next week against the Suns at home. They finish up with a trip to the Adelaide. Well, how crucial is that game becoming? That is one of your late Saturday games at around 23. And then the national TV game Sunday around 24 hosting the Demons. It's appropriate for them to have a spotlight at the very end of the season. You know, the runners up from last year fighting for the spots. And with Buddy now retired, obviously, the younger forwards have lifted for him. And when they haven't had great scoring impact, they've won enough contest, forced enough balls to ground for the smaller forwards to be impactful. Seriously, though, even in a game where the tall forwards don't do a heck of a lot, in conditions where they probably won't do as much, Logan McDonald was actually the one to be subbed out. The forward mix is not an issue for the Swans, and so it's less that Buddy Franklin will be missed on the field with the diminished impact he had this year, and more that there's just, you know, the specter of Buddy no longer being there. The Swans will need to Find some new stars, I guess, and they have plenty of them in the making. They have enough good tall forwards, just their stars are more in the midfield. Big performers for the Swans, other than Golden, Callum Mills was clearly among the best players in the second half. Worked a lot of that wing role, again, kind of a higher wing role. Kicked a point from 28 disposals and 9 marks. Jake Lloyd with 27 disposals and 666 meters from the back. 26 for Luke Parker. James Robottom with a very James Robottom game. 24 disposals, 17 contested, 10 intercepts, 7 clearances, and 7 marks. Chad Warner had that dagger goal and 22 disposals. Robbie Fox, 12 intercepts, and again, Hayden McLean with the joint career high, 4 goals. In a game where the tall forwards weren't really as much of a focus, McLean still was able to lift. It was not the prettiest of games, especially once the rain set in at the second half. The Swans were the more efficient team inside 50, but they were just at 42.6% disposal efficiency. The Giants at 38.2%. I wish we could have gotten a Sydney Derby with better conditions this year. At the same time, two very good contests nonetheless. I believe this is actually the Swans' thinnest ever margin of victory in a Sydney Derby. Wow. Yeah, uh, you'd think at some point before they would have had at least one that was, you know, within like 11 or 10. Meanwhile, the Giants' last four Sydney Derby victories have come by a combined... Six points. 
But yeah, the the previous smallest margin of victory for the Swans was uh, Sydney Derby 13 in 2017, a 13-point victory at the showground where they also scored 96. Tom Green, top-ranking player on the ground for the game. His first game back from his hamstring injury. 38 disposals, 20 contested possessions, an octopus, 8 score involvement, 7 clearances. Lockie Asha behind, 28 disposals, 10 intercepts. Don't usually think of him as such a big interceptor. 627 meters gained. Seen a more versatile game from him this year. He'd been more of a tagger in the past couple years and been able to play more freely at halfback. Callan Ward, a goal and 26 disposals. Steven Canelio, 25 disposals, 577 meters. Kieran Briggs, 28 hitouts, 20 disposals, and 8 clearances. Tom Hickey was able to body up to him a decent amount, but Briggs was still productive. Interesting stat line for Toby Bedford, where he had a goal and a behind off 14 disposals. 10 contested possessions. You don't usually expect that for a guy who's so quick and able to get to open space. Also, eight tackles adjusted to the conditions really well, and it's unfortunate that he'll have to be out this tone week. And then Toby, three goals in the behind off 14 disposals. Toby Green, that is. I mean, he's the Toby that most people think of, I'd say. North Melbourne, 10, 11, 71, defeated by Melbourne, 15, 13, 103. Uh, North came out with their hair on fire, though. 35-9 first quarter. Maybe it was a, you know, fired up to have their coach back type of deal. Alistair Clarkson back for his 400th game as an AFL head coach. Big milestone there. Pretty cool that it happened in Tasmania. You know, it was all by design. Take exactly as many games off so that 400 would be in Tasmania. Totally not a coincidence. Wake up, sheeple. North works it out to a 33-point lead. It was 42-9 after a Robert Hansen Jr. behind early in the second quarter. And then the Demons just cleaned up their ball of movement. North had been playing really fluidly early on. They'd had decent possession time, but Melbourne just needed to clean things up. And they did. Second quarter was seven goals to three. Just a four-point game at halftime. And then the Demons limited North to one goal in each of the last two quarters. And ended up winning by 32. 33 points is actually their largest comeback this year. Not a team that has had to play by behind a whole lot. I mean, I mean, 33 is not a tiny comeback. So if, if you had told me, you know, that's not like a super mind-blowing number. You know, over the course of multiple years, you know, like when we talked about GWS's biggest comebacks ever a week ago. Sure, but over the course of one year, yeah, you can go a whole season, even as a team that wins a bunch of games without ever having to come back for more than about four to five goals. When North were going well early on, Eddie Ford played a big part in that. No surprise there. Ford played well on Jake Lever, had two of North's first three goals. If this is your first time listening to us or just your first time paying attention while we talked about North Melbourne, we think Eddie Ford's pretty good. Was able to limit James Sisley recently, had this performance against Jake Lever. Go back and watch Eddie Ford. Seriously, number 40 for North. Also just a fun, exciting player with the ball. You know, good mix of the wow factor and doing the kind of quiet, less glamorous, but nonetheless important things. Also notice North trying to keep Stephen May out of defensive 50 packs, and that meant Nick Larky was playing higher up, which allowed Ford more of that time as a deeper target, and that worked. But again, once Melbourne cleaned things up in terms of movement, got a number of quick intercept marks that led to goals in the second quarter, they had all the forward time 
to begin the third when they managed to take the lead off of a Harrison Petty goal. Oh yeah, then Harrison Petty got hurt. That's that's the big thing coming out of this game. A similar ankle injury to what he suffered earlier in the year, and so that could put him out for six weeks of just when it looked like they were finding their forward solution. They've got to retool again on the taller side. Is this an opportunity for Ben Brown to come back in? We know Tom McDonald's close to coming back, and he can be that sort of swingman player. Or in the more immediate, does this open up a possibility for Joel Smith to join the 22 as a swingman? I think that's the most likely I saw. I forget who was speculating that Brown and Brody Grundy don't really factor into Melbourne's final plans. Wouldn't be shocked. As much as the Gone and Grundy combination was a focus earlier on this year, Max Gone has been his most Max Gone when Brody Grundy's been off. And once they managed to work out the margin, they were able to manage Gone in the fourth quarter. He'd had 100% time all ground in the fourth quarter each of the prior four weeks only 55% in Tasmania on Sunday. See, I would make sure to get Grundy in there to alleviate some of the pressure from gone in the last couple of weeks of the home and away season, but whether or not you use Grundy in finals, I'm not so sure. Maybe you could see Grundy then for round 23 against Hawthorne? I would say just, you could put both of them in the lineup, and you could also kind of use that as a chance for Grundy to audition his way back in if he really forces the issue. I think it's going to be difficult to shake things up these next couple weeks, though. You've got a Saturday night clash against Carlton that's looking even more pivotal than we thought it was. Now that the Demons have worked their way up to second and the Blues fifth. Yeah, all of a sudden, second through fourth, you know, for a while looked like there was a clear top two and a clear third and fourth. There's still a 10-point separation between fourth and fifth, so the double chances are pretty much decided. Yeah, but it's a matter of... It's a matter of... It's a matter of percentage, it's a matter of... It's a percentage battle now between the Demons and Lions where Port need to get the wins. It's about playing at home, having what could be a more advantageous matchup, not having to go to the Gabba or Adelaide Oval. Other things I noticed had to do with some goal kicking. Alex Neil Bolin had previously kicked 14 goals in 14 different games. Kicked his first goal, went up to 15 goals in 15 games, and then added a second late in the third quarter. His first multi-goal game since last year's semi-final, and his first in home and away in two years. And then he added a third near the end of the third quarter, just the fourth three-goal game of his career and the first in five years. That was unexpected. What was expected was that as soon as Kate Chandler kicked a second goal, he'd get a third. Kate Chandler does not kick two goals in a game. Had you noticed this before this year, Ethan? No, but I, I like to think of it as in like that dumb old meme, meme format. You know, like, one does not simply kick two goals in a game. Well, Kate Chandler doesn't. He's kicked one goal seven times and three goals five times. No, just two goal showings for him this year. Has he ever had a game with exactly two goals? Considering he hadn't kicked a goal prior to this season. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, the three three-goal kickers in this game for the Demons. Kazi Pickett. Okay, makes sense. Kate Chandler, once he got a second, you knew it. And Alex Neil Bowen, who hadn't had a multi-goal game all year. Agus Brayshaw led the game with 37 disposals. Lucky Hunter had 33 at 7 marks. Christian Petrocic kicked 2-3 from 27 disposals, had 16 contested possessions, and also took a hanger, which is just not his type of thing to do. He didn't convert off that for one of his goals. Jack Viney has gotten a lot of praise in the past couple months with Clayton Oliver out. His contested output has been really noticeable. He had 26 disposals, 10 marks, and 501 meters. 
Max Dolan had 30 hitouts from 17 disposals. Alex Neal Bolin also had 17 as he kicked 3-1. And Jacob Van Royen kicked 2-2 with 10 score involvements. In 16 games, he has five multi-goal showings and has kicked 24 goals 7. A very reliable set shot. Kind of Oscar Allen-like. The Demons were plus 24 on inside 50s and plus 12 on Mark's inside 50. Again, once they got some of their movements sorted out through the middle in the second quarter, nothing was in doubt. Jack Zebel, he's going out strong. I think those couple weeks as a sub has allowed him to kind of conserve his energy for the grand finale. 32 disposals, 12 marks, 555 meters gained. And that grand finale will be right back there at Blundstone Arena against the Suns in three weeks' time. Bailey Scott, one goal, one behind, 31 disposals, 617 meters gained. Jai Simpkin, a goal and 28 disposals. Luke Davies Uniac starting to work his way back up to his pre-injury form with a behind, 27 disposals off, 17 contested possessions and 8 clearances. Taron Thomas, 23 disposals, 14 contested possessions, 10 clearances and 8 tackles. We've seen him as a big tackler, but as a big clearance machine too. Yeah, that, that's been a bit less expected. I'm wondering if Maybe Hugh Greenwood being out had a little bit to do with that. Again, I think Greenwood belongs in this team, but glad that Thomas was able to put on a good performance back home in Tasmania. He's a Launceston native. And then Luke McDonald, 17 disposals, 9 marks, 557 meters. He's had a better past couple games defensively after he'd been ragged on for really a couple months straight. And just briefly want to touch on Bailey Scott. I think he's a name that's been tossed around a lot more in terms of North's best players this year. Had he been on another team, people would have been talking about him more already. The middle game on Sunday was a game on which I didn't focus as much, you know, because it was Ethan's game to cover, but heck of a contest, really high pressure the whole way, and a tale of two halves in a lot of respects. St. Kilda, 8-6-54, defeated by Carlton, 10-13-73. Saints doubled up the Blues in the first half, and kicked one goal the rest of the way. So how exactly did Carlton turn it around, Ethan? There weren't a lot of major adjustments made. It was just they played better. You know, just as Kanye is a proud non-reader of books, I am a proud non-liker of Carlton, but I am loving the way they're playing. Not just moving the ball quickly, but putting on a ton of pressure defensively. Just an up-tempo, high-octane, exciting game that, like, the final score does not suggest how much fun this was. Like, you look at the final score and you think, oh, it was another boring, slow St. Kilda game. Another game where Ross Lyon managed to keep the tempo down, and he was somewhat early on. But really, from the late second quarter on, you could start seeing the shift. This was a super fun watch. I think the Saints played a decently good game here. Just ran out of a bit of steam. I think some of that just... Momentum was clearly swinging late in the third, and while it was great to have Max King back, he had a pretty significant miss from about 25 meters out after a mark that you could argue to use the ground to secure it. Might not have been a catch in the NFL, but I think it was barely called a mark. Anyway, that would have kind of restored momentum heading into the fourth quarter. Instead, they were only up eight. David Cunningham kicked a goal from a tough angle to open the fourth after Tom DeConing came out of the crowd pretty well. Tony kicked the first goal of the second half just kind of out of nowhere. I'm telling you, he's played really well lately, even once Jack Salvani went down. You know, Mark Pitnett gets the hitouts to advantage, but I think Tom DeConing's been a really high-impact player, which I never would have thought heading into this year. 
Cunningham also did a good job on that play, I know, taking out Brad Hill to an extent. Hill is still one of the faster players for St. Kilda, but was also one of their more stable players throughout the night. So being able to take him out on that play was really big. And then who had the go-ahead goal? Patty Dow, who has been the sub again and again. He was brought into the 22 with Adam Chera and Mitch McGovern, both dealing with hamstring injuries. And he was about to be subbed off. And then he kicked that goal. Jess Webster from ABC and Fox Footy said that the Blues had written out the papers, nearly filed them, and then Patty scored the go-ahead goal and you know, ultimately the game winner. And they decided, nah, you're staying on, and Ed Curnow's not going to be on for a bit longer. It's funny because like a couple weeks ago, Matthias Filippo got subbed out right after kicking the goal because I think like the papers had been filed. And Matthias scored a goal in this game as well and, and was the sub-victim for the Saints regardless. I thought it was appropriate. He was he hasn't been a huge impact lately. I've started to understand why sometimes you want to manage a younger guy to you know as they kind of learn how to parcel out their workload over the course of the season. Like in a case like this, I can see why someone like him or Anthony Caminini could use a week just resting. Whereas Caminiti, you know, he tends to find a way to give himself time off. He was going to this week. The suspension ended up getting reduced to a fine, but he had taken a shot at James Sicily last week, which to be fair, a lot of guys probably want to do that. Anyway, Carlton took the lead on the Dow goal, all while the weird sub thing was going on, where, like, if it wasn't a close game, it would have been the sorts of, like, all of my fascination. Because you had Kernel like, getting up and stretching and then putting the jacket back on, and then it came off, and then it went back on. Apparently, after they had decided not to sub Dow out, they had decided pretty quickly that it was going to be Lockie Fogarty, but... The bench kept calling him over, and he just stayed out there. I'd like to think he knew what was up and was like, no, I'm staying on. I'm better than him. And at one point, the commentary team had even said, like, you know, do you even want to bother using the sub? Like, which is like a very polite way of saying this probably isn't an upgrade. They finally did pull the trigger with about eight minutes left, and it worked right away. So, again, I don't think Ed Kernow's a particularly skilled player, but fresh legs with eight minutes left in a game, pretty awesome to have. He delivered a ball into the forward 50, then Charlie did a good job tying up Cal Wilkie. Blake Akers outmuscled Mason Wood and handballed to Charlie for a goal to put the Blues up a solid 12 points. That was really the last big opportunity until Akers scored on the run from right at the edge of 50 with 322 left, and that really finished it off. Really impressive goal from Akers as well. He kicked two big ones in this game lifting against one of his former sides in the Saints. And Charlie Cardo played a bit further up the ground in this game on Cal Wilkie, trying to keep Wilkie out of the defensive 50 at times. And even though he himself only got one goal, and I think would have been the first time he'd been left goalless in, I think, about two years, but it allowed the smaller forts to keep moving well and just taking out that mashup with the most important defender was crucial. Oh yeah, Jesse Motlock kicked another two. He was that late in, in round 18, kicked four goals then in the first half. He had kicked 10 goals in his first 12 games this year. He's kicked 10 in the four games since he's been brought back in. You mentioned Kernow playing up on the wing. There was some speculation that he was kind of doing what Harry Mackay would have done. And I thought it worked pretty well just because it took Wilkie out of that defensive 50. Exactly. And the marking ability along the wing around midfield was pretty good. And he was able to deliver to deliver the ball forward. So that worked nicely. And then I thought 
two guys who have spent some time in the defense in 50, one much more than the other, really important for the Blues. Sam Doherty, who was able to kind of sneak forward and play around the edge of the forward 50, and Matthew Cottrell, who I've just really enjoyed ever since he was brought in. He really added to that kind of dynamic element for them, the speed that they had been missing. And the two of them were in sync on a lot of sequences in the second half that I really like. Seeing less of Cottrell in the back half this year, but clearly works well there. A versatile player with speed will always be useful. And just thinking back to Cardell's ability to play that high wing role, I think his field kicking, his delivery inside 50 has been really underrated. And when Harry Micaiah has been at his best, thinking back, it was Charlie's deliveries that helped set up a lot of that. I thought it was a pretty solid game plan by Michael Voss. On the St. Kilda side, obviously great to have Max King back. Even with that miss late the third, they just seemed like a more complete unit. If you had watched this game without looking at the score, you would have thought they would have had more than 54 points and 14 scoring shots because of just the tempo they played at. Like, I can't come away from this game, unlike most losses, with too many negative thoughts about the Saints. I liked their overall showing in this game. Mason Wood was phenomenal. I mean, he was just everywhere. And... Brad Crouch played a great three quarters and then unfortunately was pretty quiet in the fourth. And again, I don't think there was a ton of adjusting done there. Didn't quite get a glimpse of what it was that took him out in the equation or who gets credited for that. I might have to go back to review that a little more, but that was the one of the few real changes that was made was we got to make sure to keep him off the ball. And throughout the game, the Blues did a really good job keeping Jack Steele off the ball, limited him to 11 disposals. He did have an octopus, but... Only 11 disposals, even with that. Nick Newman leading the way for the Blues with 35 disposals, 13 marks, 10 intercepts, 623 meters. He was involved in a lot of key sequences all game long, not just that led to scores, whether it was getting the ball out of their own 50 or bringing it into the forward 50. Very physical, a lot of ground ball gets, very involved in handballs, and not just racking up possession numbers. Zach Fisher, 32 disposals, 551 meters gain. Welcome back. I hope you're at Eagle soon. Blake Akers, two goals, 27 disposals, 11 marks. That's still the most ridiculous trade. You know, people talking about Richmond not having their first round pick, but they got what they needed to out of that deal. I still don't get what the fuck Rio were doing with this. They could have gotten so much more. Sam Doherty kicked three behinds, but still 26 disposals and seven marks. Patrick Cripps, 24 disposals, 15 contested possessions, 11 clearances. George Hewitt, 23 disposals and 8 tackles. Patty Dow, a goal, 22 disposals, 7 clearances. Oliver Hollins, who I've really liked, 20 disposals. Jacob Wietering, 16 disposals, 10 marks and 9 intercepts. Neither team particularly efficient inside 50. I think some of that's sloppiness from playing a bit faster. Some of that's also just really high defensive intensity. Blues were more efficient at 39.3% to the Saints, 31.8. Also, Carlton killed them in clearances, 46 to 22. 37 15 from stoppage. Saints did land 17 more tackles, 79 to 62. Just wanted to mention also about Ollie Hollins. Uh, Dutchie's the rising star nominee for this round. Well deserved. I loved his performance the prior week as well. I could have, you, know, you could have given it to him last week, but I'm glad Mac Andrew got his. Still winning on Elijah Hewitt, I guess, for the Eagles, but who else is still... Hewitt's one of the big ones there. I guess Neil Erasmus hasn't gotten his yet. Yes, that's the one I was thinking of. But Holland's with six tackles and four marks as well. Strong defensive winger. You could have him linking up with Blake Akers or maybe even have him 
go up the ground a bit and play opposite acres at times. Glad he's gotten this sort of recognition. Yeah, monster game out of Mason Wood. Some of the productivity we saw from him reminiscent of earlier in the year, especially with Jack Steele having less of an impact. He expected Wood to carry more, and he did. 36 disposals, 14 marks, and 773 meters gained. Differences earlier in the year, he was also scoring goals. Obviously, these guys are still missing Sev Ross, but having Wood playing at this level reminds you of why they have been in such a good position all year long. Wood and Brad Crouch as well. Crouch with a goal from 31 disposals, 9 tackles, and 7 clearances. I mentioned last week that Crouch had been helping make up for Seb Ross's absence, even though Seb Ross could be a bit of a chaos player at times. Jackson, Claire, and Caleb Wilkie had 23 disposals each. Wilkie with 10 marks as well, but playing further upfield than normal. Jimmy Webster with 17 disposals and 9 marks. Josh Battle had 11 intercepts in the back. And Rowan Marshall, we continue to be really high on him. A goal from 30 hitouts, 13 disposals, and 8 tackles. Still been able to play all around the oval, even though he's the number one ruckman now and really hasn't had much support the entire year. Entertaining end to the round out west. Frio 11-8-74, defeated by the Brisbane Lions 11-11-77. Wait, the Dockers won a first quarter and a first half? If you had told me at the start of the year that Brisbane would go into Frio in round 21 and win by three... I would think great, probably a huge game between two finalists. Obviously, Frio, that hasn't happened. I'm glad they played a good game. Makes last week look a little less embarrassing, although Josh Corbett being completely shut down, that frustrates me. I'm waiting for Liam Reedy to make his debut and allow Luke Jackson to play more freely. Uh, it seemed like Jackson was still pretty damn good in this game, just looking at the numbers. Again, this is a game that I have hardly watched any of. I'm going to go back and do so. Yeah, I mean, Jackson was able to have a cleaner look at things without having to match up against Oscar McInerney. He was held out with his ankle injury, so it was Darcy Ford who was the main ruckman. Jackson had a goal, two behinds, 44 hitouts, 24 disposals, and 15 contested possessions. Ford, not as strong in the, in the ruck, but it was Joe Danaher's backup ruck work and some of his defensive marking down the stretch that helped tidy up the game for the Lions late. It was even at three-quarter time and really goal for goal from there. John Amos kicked the first goal of the fourth as he was able to mark against Jack Payne. Ryan Lester didn't support him enough. That was a fun matchup throughout the night, Amos versus Payne. Joe Danaher gave the Lions a narrow lead with a soccer a couple minutes later. Super high pressure throughout this quarter. Tough to get clean looks. But the Lions managed to get one out off a free kick with Huma Cluggage taking advantage and setting up Jack Gunston. We were wondering if Gunston maybe should have been managed this week considering it had done him well. But he had two clutch goals and took Luke Ryan out of the contest for a lot of the game, which is easier said than done. Ryan has not been the problem defensively for the Dockers all year. And props to Gunston for being able to win that matchup when it mattered. Yeah, I was surprised that Ryan was held to, like, the mid-70s in fantasy points this week. You have Ryan, and do you also have, do you have Hayden Young as well, or do you have Reddit Cox? I did. I think as of now, Ryan is my only Frio defender. Yeah, would uh would have been nice for you to have Hayden Young, considering he's been moved into the midfield and looks like a real tagger. That's been one of the biggest changes for the Dockers in recent weeks, and I'm wondering what could have happened had they realized this sooner, just made the switch sooner. First, he neutralizes Patrick Dangerfield. Then, he holds Locking Neal in check for a decent amount of the game. Neal still didn't manage 25 disposals and 8 clearances, but Young, with 29, 50 contested possessions, 
seven clearances, and an octopus for himself. It was an even matchup, so very well done, Hayden Young. The Lions held the lead from that Danaher soccer all the way through, even though Sam Sturt managed to kick his third goal with five and a half left. Ethan, you had forgotten that Sam Sturt had debuted in 2020 and in fact kicked three goals in the first ever game we watched. He was the rising star nominee for round one of 2020. Yeah, the only individual performer that we really understood that game at the time, because, you know, it was a lot to take in, was... But yes, Sturt was a standout from that game. The start of his career has been marred by Adrian, getting more consistent time now, happy for that. But Eric Hipwood stretched it out to an eight-point margin with three and a half to go. I had said earlier in the game that Hipwood had had really great per-disposal impact, hadn't gotten a whole lot of the ball but was an important mark, had a couple assists, and I said he knows how to get into a game even if he can't hit the scoreboard. Then he did hit the scoreboard and also had the last crucial mark as well, so uh, the defense rests for Eric Hipwood. Between him and Danaher, they still had more than enough of an impact. I know they've been criticized a lot of times, but it's very rare to have a week where both of them are down. Once Hipwood got that goal, I thought that it was over to begin with. They did manage to get out of some congestion, and Michael Frederick kicked the goal with a minute nine left. And then Frio got the next entry, but Ryan Lester was able to kick it out for a hipwood to mark, and that was it from there. Danaher managed a behind at the end of things, and Lockie Neal has his first win at Frio since moving away. Thought he would have gotten one sooner. And uh, yeah, Frio fans still definitely remember that he went away. It was a must-have game for the Lions. They weren't able to get a big percentage boost from this, so they weren't able to get up to second. They're in third now. It's going to be a very tight percentage battle with the Demons the whole way. Definitely something to watch. I wouldn't be shocked if you see a live ladder up. Look at those percentages these next three rounds. You know, usually with percentage, I think a lot's made out of it when it's not going to end up being a factor. With this, it very well could be. And it's like one where every goal is actually needed to decide this thing. It's a difference between having to play at home in your in your home state and having to travel to an environment where you've had difficulty winning. I mean, we've seen how the results have changed so easily a lot of the time between the Gamma and the G for that Melbourne-Brisbane matchup, even with last year's anomalies. When the Dockers had the better chances this game, it was because they were able to punish off turnovers, Lions were plus four on center clearances in the first quarter, but also committed six more turnovers. It felt like a game the Lions should have had more of a control over, but their turnovers were so costly and Dockers punished well. Considering how much speed Frio has, that is something they should be able to do. It hadn't been that way for a lot of the year, which was disappointing, and Frio managed to do good things off their own center clearances. But again, between Hipwood having the high per-disposal impact, Jack Gunston occupying Luke Ryan, and Cal Achi marking in a lot of valuable spots. I mean, Achi's aerial skill makes him valuable in really any game plan. Never going to be a main target, obviously. You often see him being a mark on the wing, then putting on good deliveries. That he's been held out of the lineup is a testament to the Lions' depth. Yeah, it's not like he had done anything to deserve to not be in the line. With Lockie Neal being tagged, it was actually Jared Barry who led the Lions in disposals with 28. He would have been way down the list of guys I would have guessed. You know, I would have put McCluggage ahead of that. Probably pretty much all the guys that you're about to read off here. I would have said Dunkley right off the bat. Dunkley only at 17, but he had eight tackles as well, so his impact was felt. 
but Jared Berry a goal from 28 disposals and seven marks, one of his best games. And with so much focus on the Neil and Dunkley duo, you need a strong third guy in there. And this season, Jared Berry has been that third guy in those more central contests, doing more of the inside work, whereas Hugh McCluggage is still playing more of a wing role. McCluggage kicked a goal from 22 disposals. Dane Zorko played a good supporting role, 20 disposals and 10 marks and zero nuts grabbed. Cam Rayner are behind from 19 and 12 marks. Lincoln McCarthy, a lot of phrases for him in this game as well. Their fresher leader, eight tackles, 11 contested possessions, and he kicked 1-1 from his 17 disposals. There have only been a couple games this year where he's really been on. I can think of really three. There was the game against North in the Gather round. where the Lions just had a field day, and the two games against Freo. I mean, I think he's done a good job making himself a useful player week in and week out, where even if he's not stealing the show, he's doing a solid job. Correct, but it's those three games where his impact has been felt the most. And it was obviously badly needed in this one in particular. Lions took 41 more marks. Interesting, because you usually think of Frio as a team that, you know, they're passing around their own end. Yeah, much less of that this week. I think Luke Ryan being taken out of the contest limited that somewhat. But also they had an urgency to move, considering with Logan Neal being limited in the middle, they could take advantage of some mismatches they had elsewhere, just use their speed to their advantage. We saw that from them, particularly in the first half. Lions did win contested marks 18 to 8. That's not surprising. That's kind of been, that's been an obstacle for the Dockers and it's something that the Brisbane tall forwards are obviously quite good at. Lions also recorded 11 more tackles inside 50. Caleb Sarong, 35 disposals, 9 clearances, 7 tackles. He's put up some great numbers all the time, but to do that against a team that's got the likes of Lockie Neal and Josh Dunkley, even more impressive. Angus Brayshaw, 29 disposals, and Liam Henry, 24 disposals and 7 marks. I believe it's awards time. All right. Your Mark of the Week winner for round 20 was Jamie Elliott in that pack over Jacob Wiedering. We were both going between that one and Oscar Allen's mark over Luke McDonald. Allen's taken some great haggers these past couple weeks. Your nominees for this round, from Saturday, you had Shane McAdam controlling on a second effort when he really marked over his teammate Riley O'Brien and Mitch Lewis getting his knee to the back of Isaac Quainer. Then on Sunday, you had Christian Petraka's hanger over and between causing Pickett and Jackson Archer. Pickett tying up Archer allowed Petraka to get the airtime he needed. Which one do you like out of these, Ethan? I think this is a really solid batch for a year that's been devoid of really good marks. I think we've got three quality ones. I think they're, I, I think Petraka and McAdam are both better than Lewis. I think I'm going to go with McAdam here. Had McAdam been able to control on a first effort, I would have easily set him. I think I'm going to nearly go with McAdam. I love that Petraka was able to take a big mark considering that's not his forte. But I think McAdam was the better mark, although I think Petraka will win the vote. And I wouldn't be mad about it. Goal of the week, your round 20 winner was Taylor Walker. He played on from a free kick, deep to Lear and kicked his fourth of seven goals from 50 with his left. But we thought Michael Frederick was way better, the one where he ran down a bounce from a Jordan Clark kick, then outran Tom Stewart and kicked from a ridiculous angle to cut the lead to a single point. And you realized, even though Frio were trailing, that they were going to win once you saw that Freddy goal. Yeah. I mean, there were other signs, but that that was big. As I said last week, had that happened while the Dockers were ahead, we would have seen our second Freddy backflip of the year. I think he still should have backflipped, but 
you don't do that when you're trailing. Your nominees for this week, Taylor Walker beating Jared Witz for a throw-in, running through a crowd and kicking a bouncer from the left pocket from about 35 meters. We've got Errol Golden tapping to himself on the boundary, then doing a little one-two give-and-go with Sam Waits before kicking from a tight angle. And we've got Kazi Pickett receiving from Jacob Van Royen and kicking the opening goal from the boundary. He took steps toward the boundary for that, too. He made it harder on himself, but knew he could do it. It's a really tough one for me between Golden and Pickett. I like goals where the player who scores ends up creating more of the play himself. And so I think for that, I'm giving my vote to Errol Golden. But Kazi's was damn good as well. In terms of the kick, I think Kazi's may have been the best. I think I'll also take Golden. None of these were bad. None of these, I think, make, you know, make it to Brownlow night or anything. Both of Golden's goals were impressive. And then Kazi, I mean, it's Kazi. Expect him to do crazy things. I mean, there's a class still like four or five goals that are just so above and beyond, but these were solid. We still contend that the best goal this year was Will Ashcroft's Jackie Chan from Super Deep having to go inside on the boot. She said she's too young, don't want no man. I should have seen that coming. So last week's main character, um, do we have our first ever co-main characters? Yeah, not that they were, there was any overlap between the two, but just two very noteworthy things. You know, it's like how you can have co-Brownlow medalists. I mean, heck, you had co-Karji Greaves medalists last year. Ryan for Karji 2023. I mean, I think it's going to be Tom Stewart, but it could be Ryan. I think he's second, if not first. I'm going to have to, like, find a stream of the whole thing, just knowing that he's going to be in consideration and be getting a lot of praise, no matter what happens the rest of the season. But yeah, your round 20 co-main characters, you had Harrison Petty, who suddenly became a forward and kicked six straight from 10 marks to lead the Demons to victory over Richmond. And then you had Dane Zorko's nuts because, yes, Tuke Miller grabbed him and got suspended for it. Why was there no meme of, with, like, Tuke Miller's head on the squirrel from Ice Age? Oh, maybe it would have been a little too on the nose? Uh, his name is Scrap. Yeah, of course it is. I, I had forgotten. Anyway, there really isn't any, like, obvious pick for round 21. I mean, you could just go with Hawthorne as a whole for beating Collingwood. I mean, that in that case, then, I would honestly say if there's a single player, James Sicily. Because it is so obvious that you need to give him a lot more attention than Collingwood did. And when Hawthorne has big games, he's usually the reason why they win. So, you know, I'd be comfortable saying James Sicily is your main character. Because... It, it's kind of a body of work thing as well, almost, where he's been such a commonly discussed player this year that maybe it's a time for us to give him his due. You've also mentioned Michael Voss as a possibility, right? Yeah, just continuing to do good things with the Carlton game plan. It's their first seven-game winning streak since 2000, we didn't mention that earlier. And Voss beating Ross for the first time. He'd previously been 0-6 against him. I think I'll go with Michael Voss, actually. All right, then. Voss it is. I'm surprised that Sicily hasn't gotten it yet. Maybe we should have given it to him as like an honorable mention or a co-main character after that ridiculous game he had against St. Kilda where he was suspended. But all right, Voss. And that's it. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with you for the round 22 preview in, well, we'll, we'll actually physically be recording it in less than 24 hours. Our schedule's a little off this week because of my travel originally wanted to record after flying back in Sunday night, but flight delayed, and I just wouldn't have been anywhere near prepared enough and would have been way too tired, so pushed things a bit. It but worked. 
you definitely got a much higher quality show out of this, so uh, you're welcome. Don't forget we are on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. He is at Castle Media. I am at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe is on Instagram at cat named Brian. He is also just sitting right next to me. And uh, we'll be back to work soon enough. Thanks for listening. Thank you.